0: all right welcome to the podcast today is a very special episode uh, it is our first interview with a psychiatrist so our first guest is uh dr jasper purican dr Purikan is a lifelong arizonan Dr. Purican completed his undergraduate degrees from the University of Arizona in Tucson in 2016. While there, he earned a Bachelor of Science in Molecular and Cellular Biology with honors, and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration with emphasis in accounting. He achieved many academic awards, including the Highest Academic Distinction, Dean's List with Distinction, Outstanding Academic Achievement Award from the School of Accountancy, outstanding senior from the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology, summa cum laude, among others. And he then went on to attend the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. He was involved in many leadership activities while attending medical school, including being a student member of the admissions committee, a student leader of the psychiatry interest group, a student leader of the business in medicine interest group, a student leader to the Asian Pacific American Medical Student Association, as well as an ambassador to the Asian corporate and entrepreneur leaders. Dr. Piracan graduated from the University of Arizona College of Medicine Phoenix in 2021 with a doctorate of medicine degree, as well as a master of public health with an emphasis in clinical leadership. Dr. Piracan recently began his residency in psychiatry at the Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. All right, without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Piracan. All right, Dr. Purican. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's great to have you today.
1: It's great to be here. I appreciate that, Dr. Mitchell, and you, you can call me Jasper for the purposes. <laughs> All right, <of> our interview.
0: <laughs> very good, very good, Jasper. Thank you so much again for joining us, Jasper. I'm very excited about this uh, interview. This is our first interview uh, with a practicing psychiatrist, uh, and uh, you know you've been a psychiatrist here for a while now. Uh, you know, a week or so. So. <laughs> anyway, we're very, very excited to have you on. Uh, so I kind of introduced you a little bit uh, at the beginning. Uh, for those who don't know, I also went to the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Me and Jasper actually graduated together. Uh, Jasper is a good friend of mine, and I'm uh, very excited to have him here. Uh, so Jasper, just to start off, you know, could you tell us about yourself kind of generally, where you're from, what you like to do, any hobbies or anything like that, and then anything from the bio that I missed?
1: Definitely. Yeah. So I'm, I, I think you might have mentioned this in the intro. I'm pretty much from Arizona. I was originally born in New Jersey, but I moved out to Arizona, specifically Peoria, Arizona, I think when I was two years old. And I've been in the state ever since. So grew up in Peoria, went to Altamont Elementary School, then Peoria High School. And then after high school, I decided to go down to the U of A, uh, did a couple of degrees there. Took an took an interesting path to medicine, I think, because the first time I applied to medical school, I didn't actually get accepted. And for me, that was probably a little egotistical and also definitely threw me off balance. So I ended up taking a gap year in Tucson, where eventually I ended up working an entry-level job with the corporate side of Uber. I, I wasn't a driver, I was at to clarify, uh, I was helping drivers get onboarded and helping them get used to the system and helping with boots on the ground operations with Uber Tucson. And then during my second time applying for medical school, I eventually got accepted and decided to join up at U of Acom Phoenix. And you know, now we're here over the past four years to be able to survive medical school and keep my sanity intact. i uh, actually started to learn how to cook, started teaching myself recipes and got ideas from you know, binging with Babish and other plates and entrees I've had from restaurants and so that's really been a major hobby of mine and obviously, at first, when I started cooking, it didn't turn out so well. I'm pretty sure I found a way to burn water and <laughs> you know over the ensuing years it got better and better and you know, now I torture people on Instagram with all the things that I make. So <laughs> that's, uh, I don't,
0: I don't know about torturing. I, I've had some of your food, Jasper, and it's pretty dang good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's good for the mind. It's good for the soul, but not necessarily Absolutely. the best thing for uh, my lipid panel. So,
0: <laughs> Hey, you got to have an outlet though. So that's, that's cool.
1: Exactly. Well, good.
0: Well, good. Well, thanks Thanks for that. Um, you know, Jasper, uh, I, I didn't know that about you, um, that, you know, you had that gap year. I, I knew you worked for Uber for a while. Um, me and Jasper, we actually were on the same interview day. I don't know if you remember this, but we interviewed the same day at the at University of Arizona in Phoenix. And I remember that day, three things about you. Number one, that he worked for Uber because you, you kept talking about Uber and you loved Uber. <laughs> and so now I know why but, uh, number two, I thought, you know, what, this guy clearly knows his stuff. He's a, he's a businessman. He kept talking about business school. And I was like, you know what, probably within like three or four years after graduation, he's probably just going to own the medical school. Uh, and then (laughs) number three, uh, that you like to have a good time. So anyway, it was, uh, it was kind of funny that, uh, that I met you that first day and we ended up matching or not matching, but uh, going to the same medical school and stuff. So, anyway, it's I'm, been fun, fun ride. I'm
1: actually – I totally forgot about that uh, because I think that interview day was the second or third one I had that season, so I was still, like, nervous. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was very <laughs> early on. Yeah.
1: And I, I was uh, getting to know some of the other folks at the interview day, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, stick together. It's one my <laughs> – just be calm, be yourself, but don't be too much like yourself.
0: You know. Oh man, yeah. Interviews are interviews are rough. We're going to talk about interviews in just a little bit about um, uh, residency interviews and whatnot. But oh man, not not fun. Uh, Memory lane. We survive. Memory lane. <laughs> That's right. We survive <laughs> and it's over. All right. Uh, next question. Did you always know that you wanted to go into medicine, and if not, what else could you picture yourself as?
1: That's an interesting question for me because, you know, my, my educational background, it's some people say different, other people say crazy. Uh, <laughs> it, part of me also, like, always wanted to work in medicine because it was a way for me to serve other people. And it was a way for me to combine my curiosity about science, about human physiology, and human psychology with. A way to serve those in need. So there was always a part of me who wanted to go into medicine for that express purpose. Uh, Where where it gets a little more interesting for me at least and exotic really is I originally was just a molecular and cellular biology major in college. I decided after my first semester that I had a lot of transfer credits from high school. I didn't want to do a physiology second major because there was too much overlap with science. I wanted to experiment and see what else I could uh, learn about. And I decided on, hey, I'm also going to learn how to be an accountant. Mm -hmm. which to a lot of folks doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't know if there's any real way to combine balance sheets, uh, statements of stockholders' equity, assets equals uh, liabilities plus stockholders' equity, I don't know how there's a way you could package that together with the Krebs cycle and all the <laughs> serotonergic receptors and the reuptake uh, and all that, those mechanisms and pathways. But I, I realized over time there are synergies between business and medicine, which empowers physicians and other healthcare providers to actually revolutionize medicine. But I only came to that realization after I started to get a longer, wider view of what healthcare is. Now that said, uh, you know the business mindset is also very entrepreneurial in spirit, so there's always a little part of me that could see myself trying to open my own business, you know, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the pandemic because I was bored out of my mind sitting inside my apartment for several months in a row, I started daydreaming about opening a restaurant where i I designed a menu i I even went so far as to actually contact the project manager for the space just to get details on what it would be like to rent out a I I think it was 2,500 square feet. Uh, so I, I think that if I couldn't be a doctor, I'd still be able to serve people more literally as a, as a chef in a restaurant.
0: <laughs> and, and I think you'd be very good at it. Um, again, I've had, I've had your food and it is incredible. So anyway, maybe, maybe a little bit of both, maybe a part-time chef, part-time psychiatrist or something like that. But, <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, Next question. Did you always know that you wanted to be a psychiatrist? Uh, And if not, what other specialty intrigued you?
1: So I think deep down psychiatry was really a major motivator for me to become a physician in the first place. I felt that in our communities here in America, we don't really treat, Preventive health care the way that we should. And part of that is really mental health care. So when I got accepted into med school, I started up at U of A. I was deciding between psychiatry and family medicine for a little bit, primarily because it addresses those preventive measures and allows us to employ public health techniques to help deal with frequent issues that arise in both specialties. But over time, it really came down to going into psychiatry, and those were a couple of reasons. One was for I, I find myself engrossed with some of the stories that I hear from patients, and it's a way for me to re engage with the raw humanity that our patients you know, experience. You know, it isn't intended to be a slight against other specialties, it's more intended to be, uh, uh thought that as a psychiatrist, I have an opportunity to connect with the community in a different way, the communities that I serve as a physician. And it gives me great insight into issues that I might not be experiencing myself, whether that's financial, socioeconomic barriers to care, or even just different cultural backgrounds that I, as a Filipino guy born in America, have never experienced. So I I think that adds to the richness of my own life to be able to learn about these other facets of American life. And uh, for more of a personal aspect to this too, uh, I decided on psychiatry also because there was an unfortunate uh, incident that came up November 1st year. So this is November 2017. I, I remember, I think this was after one of our anatomy exams. I think it might have been the third anatomy exam. Uh, I I was leaving the campus going back to my apartment and you know I get a message from my parents and they say, Hey, yeah, well, you remember this person? They were they were Filipinos who had moved with us from New Jersey. They were close family friends. Uh yeah, the uh you know, the mother of that thing family, the matriarch, she, she committed suicide. No one had seen the coming. There was no indication whatsoever from her that she was having bad thoughts, that she was having suicidal ideations. And it, it became a slow boil over the course of a few years. We, we found out later that she kept a secret diary where she was documenting these feelings for, I think, five years up to that point. And, it was a series of small things and one of those small things eventually was a straw that broke the camel's back and so one day she just decided to commit suicide and we were all blindsided by it and the fact that that took place with a close family friend filipino community as well it it, it was uh jarring to hear that news and it also it it focused me towards psychiatry as a result is how can I be a leader in my own community, in the Filipino community, in the the greater Asian American diaspora here in America? How can I be a leader to help address that kind of issue, to make it more acceptable to talk about mental health uh, and to avoid having that same kind of tragedy take place in other Asian American families? And by extension, that work will help countless communities here in America. So that, that was the more personal side of it. I I don't think I've ever told you about that either, Mm -mm. but, uh, that, that was, uh, that was also a contributing factor to me becoming a psychiatrist.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that story, that very personal story. It's, it's always inspiring to hear, you know, why people go into certain specialties and typically it's, you you know, I really like the patient population or I really like the people who I could potentially work with or the. You know, the, um, I guess, the, how much impact I could have on these, these patients' lives. Uh, Or it's a story kind of similar to yours, you know, where you have someone that goes through something extraordinarily challenging that's close to you. And you think, you know, I, I feel like I want to have an impact so that this thing doesn't happen again in the future. Um, So anyway, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. Uh, It's, it's interesting with, with suicidal ideations, with suicide in general, and it's kind of off topic, but uh, I've also had a couple of friends that uh, unfortunately have uh, gone through that and have committed suicide. And same thing, you know, you just would never expect it from from certain people. And, you know, the, uh, more often than not, you know, that's what happens. And it's it's extremely unfortunate. And as you said, you know, there are certain communities that, that suffer from this more than others. Uh, And I think you've definitely put yourself in a place to where that, you know, you can definitely have a huge impact uh, on your community and, you know, the community of Arizona as a whole, you know, knowing you, you've um, set yourself up in psychiatry. I feel like, you know, ever since I've talked to you, you've, you've wanted to (laughs) go into psychiatry. So you, you've, you've, I feel like learned so much over the course of medical school about psychiatry. And then, like I talked about in your intro, you know, you've, you've i feel like put yourself in a lot of leadership positions as well um so i feel like you've definitely honed some of those leadership skills that will be required for you to you know accomplish those goals that you're you're talking about so anyway very cool absolutely jasper
1: yeah all those positions it's like i have way too much time on my hands during medical school but that was that was definitely not the case
0: right right well cool um Next question, uh, will you describe for me your first psychiatry rotation uh, and was I the best part of that rotation?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the the reason why we're laughing right now is uh, my first psychiatry rotation, it's now called Valleywise Health, but back then I still call it Maricopa. Uh, Matt and I were both on the same rotation. We were both at Maricopa. <laughs> uh, so... You know, that, that that's, that's an entrapment kind of question, right? I don't know if I can answer that without getting into some kind of hot water.
0: Uh, All right, just, you, you can, you can forget that part. We'll just uh, put it on the record that I was the best part of your uh, rotation. Um, I'm
1: going, I'm going to go ahead and exercise
0: my fifth and rights. <laughs> but tell me about uh, the first psychiatry rotation you did at uh, Maricopa, kind of what, what it was like, the setting um, and whatnot.
1: Sure. So the way that our program sets it up, it's six weeks of psychiatry for a rotation. Uh, We do, if you were at Maricopa, you would do, I believe it was three weeks of inpatient, at one of two different sites in the Maricopa network, either Desert Vista or the behavioral Annex. You would also do one week of child psychiatry, rotating with different attendants at uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital. And then you'd also spend two weeks on the consult service with Maricopa. So the way that my rotation went, I did one week of inpatient at Desert Vista, then went over to child psychiatry, then came back for two more weeks of inpatient, and then two weeks of consults, which is where I spent the most time with Matt because we were both on the same consult schedule. Uh, That was really where it confirmed for me that psychiatry was the best specialty for me. And it was for a variety of reasons. One, it was working with a variety of patients with range like a wide range of psychiatric diagnoses and varying levels of acuity uh, i still remember my first patient with bipolar disorder and his story and it was amazing to see the amount of progress that we were able to make in his you know course of treatment while he was at desert vista going from complete full blown manic episode uncontrollable impulses can't stop talking, talking about these grandiose ideas about going to space with Elon Musk and coming back the next day. Then 10 days later, after we've continued the regimen of lithium for his bipolar disorder, he's become much more calm, he's stabilized, and he's future-oriented. That, that's one of the major things that we look for in psychiatry, future-oriented, with a reasonable plan to continue with outpatient therapy, with treatment, and a solid plan to Get started at college and become an engineer uh, so that that was really one of the more striking moments of the psychiatry rotation for me, especially early on and seeing more cases all throughout child psychiatry, the inpatient and then on consults it was it was reaffirming for me that I had chosen the right specialty to pursue
0: yeah that's that's interesting you know i I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like we both had such a good Rotation. You know what I mean? I I feel like that rotation was excellent. The setting was extremely interesting because it was an involuntary inpatient setting uh, for, for most of our rotation. Uh, We saw the, you know, the sickest of the sick and uh, we got to see these people, you know, that had just extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult lives that they let, that they had to lead. Uh, And They had some, you know, they were really manic at times when they came in or they're really schizophrenic or, or, or whatever. But, you know, it was interesting over the course of just even a couple of weeks, like you said, getting them on the right medications, they would be a completely different person when they left, you know? So that's, that's why I really love that rotation as well. And and unlike Jasper, I came in, I, I had no desire to do psychiatry at all. I never really even thought of it. Um, and going through that rotation, I just absolutely loved it. And it caught me off guard because I liked it so much. Um, we talked about the different settings you did with consults, with child psych, uh, with uh, inpatient. Uh, which setting do you think you like the most?
1: Yeah, That's such a hard question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in that rotation itself, uh, I don't think I really got too much of an outpatient experience because it was, right. you know, all inpatient. I would have to say that my favorite aspect of my third year rotation was the inpatient time over at Desert Vista because, you know, you—I don't know if any of you listening have ever watched uh, one of Jack Nicholson's earlier, way earlier films, "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest," uh, Nurse Ratched, uh, Big Chief, Jack Nicholson trying to get out of prison and avoid going to jail by going to a psychiatric facility, I, I get the sense that in the public consciousness, that's the kind of perception folks have of mental health hospitals. They think mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's not the best place to be. In fact, it's probably the worst place to be. You know, The padded walls with the straitjackets and all sorts of kinds of torture, like you know, electroconvulsive therapy and things like that and i think the inpatient unit seeing and being immersed in it even as a third year medical student you know it was interesting to me to see both how the patients adapted to the unit as well as you know even challenging some of the misconceptions i had about inpatient psychiatry and what a mental health facility would we'll look like they even in an involuntary setting these facilities have come a long way from the old insane asylums in the older mm-hmm. days where abuses by the staff were rampant to the patients hardly ever got better because of all these abuses and it, it was really more of a place to leave the people behind instead of actually helping to treat them uh, so that, that that's why I think the inpatient unit was interesting to me both because of that and being able to see how the hospital of course changes these uh, patients' diagnoses And, you know, the the severity of your symptoms.
0: Right. Right. Okay. What tips do you have for third years uh, rotating on psychiatry, specifically for those who want to go into psychiatry?
1: So this will be a little bit of a combination of traditional med student advice uh, and also a little bit of a twist just because you you can take me out of business school, but you can't. Uh, take the business school out of me, in, in a sense. <laughs> so for students who are doing their uh, third-year rotation on psych, you'll notice very quickly that it's very—it's a very involved patient interview, especially if you're doing an intake or an HP on a patient because there's a, there's no physical exam findings that we can really utilize to point us towards a purely psychiatric diagnosis, uh, unless we're dealing with a substance use disorder, or uh, then you know, the uh, conversations, the patient's history, that's the more important part. So for third-year students, and again, especially those uh, interested in psychiatry, my advice would be to really look at both the criteria for DSM-5 because diagnostic accuracy is king in psychiatry, and really get to know how to make those diagnoses uh, and how you can approach the questions when you're interviewing a patient about uh, describing grandiosity in terms of mania, describing compulsions, like checking your stove six times before you leave the house every time, when we're talking about OCD, that that, uh, those those kinds of uh, ways to approach that interview. Part and parcel of that is what we call the mental status exam. This is a way for us to basically conduct the, quote, fiscal exam, unquote, that allows us to determine the mood, affect, and current mental state of a patient. And this is really where it feels like you're really people watching in the middle of a conversation. You're looking at how they react to certain parts of the conversation, like if this is a patient with PTSD and you start talking about something that may or may not be a trigger, looking at their reaction and seeing if it is causing them great distress. You can talk to a patient who had just been admitted after trying to attempt suicide, and you can describe their mood, affect, their appearances, slumped, sullen, downward, avoidant eye contact, barely making contact with your own eyes. Uh, slow speech uh, even the content of what they're saying is it euthymic, meaning you know relatively neutral mood you can go higher low you know. or is the content of their speech what they're saying representative of a very downcast person someone who's forwardly psychotic things of that nature it, it really does behoove third-year students, especially if they've never had contact with psychiatry before this, to look at that mental status exam and really get a sense of how to best describe patients' uh, attendings, uh, especially when you're presenting them. That's how you can show you know what's going on in psychiatry as a third-year student is being able to utilize both your interview, your knowledge of the diagnostic criteria of the DSM, as well as aspects of the mental status exam to paint a picture And it really is kind of an art to do this in psychiatry, to paint a picture of the patient as they were when they were talking with you. Because that's really where the strength of what we do in psychiatry lies in is, what does the patient sound like, look like? What is their thought process? What is their mental state? How can we best address this with supportive therapies, with medication, things of that nature?
0: Gotcha. So really, getting down the DSM five for all of the different you know diagnoses that you, that you have to do, uh, and then nailing the mental status exam, understanding what each you know subsection entails, and then being able to describe your interaction with the patient you know really well uh, when you're presenting to an attending. Does that kind of summarize what, what you're saying?
1: Exactly, and that that's a clinical aspect of it uh, to keep. It's short in terms of the the business school side I was mentioning, especially for people who want to get engaged with psychiatry and eventually want to become a psychiatrist. Use every opportunity you have during that rotation to connect with attendings. Ask them their advice and ask them the same questions that folks might ask you is, why did you choose psychiatry? Were there other specialties you were considering and why did you choose psychiatry over those? What's the best part of the job? What's the worst part of the job? And, you know, build up rapport, build up a relationship, because eventually, if you get along really well with one of your attendings on your third year rotation, that's already a letter of recommendation you can keep in your back pocket and come back to once it's time to apply for residency.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's that's super important. Uh, So we're going to transition now into fourth year a little bit. Um, We're going to talk about applying to residencies, interviews and whatnot. but. Uh, before we get there, what other uh, psych rotations did you do during your fourth year?
1: So this wasn't really during f- fourth year for me. I actually, uh, we we had a selective uh, four-week block during third year. Mine was towards the end of third year. So in, I believe it was February 2020, I did a rural psychiatry rotation. This was with a group called Horizon Health and Wellness. They serve Central Arizona. So this encompasses Apache Junction, Florence, uh, parts of the Santan Valley and Green Creek, uh, as well as God, the name is a skip here right now. I don't know why. The, the, it'll come back to me. Yeah, I, that's I, right. <laughs> but they, they really serve quite a number of areas within central Arizona, which tend to be more rural outlying areas, even parts of Maricopa the city. And my time there was split between outpatient clinic doing telepsychiatry, actually, which was timely given what happened the following month, but uh, doing telepsychiatry out of the outpatient office in the Apache Junction and also spending time at the psychiatric emergency department that Horizon operates out of Florence. So that was a very interesting experience because it showed me another aspect of psychiatry that I didn't get a taste of during my standard third-year rotation, more outpatient, more of the uh, understanding of the biopsychosocial formulation of patients and how their socioeconomic status influences the course of their treatment. Uh, And also, on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, in in terms of acuity, in the Psyche D, it's a 23-hour hold before disposition to either back home or to a higher level of care. And patients there they are the most acute in terms of the timeline of their treatment, hospitalization, whatever you might want to call it. So it really helps flesh out what psychiatry a career in psychiatry could look like uh, from just the inpatient consultation service to both outpatient clinic, following up with patients, their longer term, also doing some brief psychotherapy. And then psychiatric EDs where they're working to stabilize, come to a working diagnosis, and then try to determine where the next best place for them after the 23 hours of the ED would be for them to get the best treatment possible.
0: Wow. So it sounds like that rotation you saw, uh, you saw a lot, you know, you saw a lot of the different settings that you could potentially practice in you know with with ed outpatient uh telepsych all all this stuff that's that's incredible do you feel like on the because it was rural do you feel like you were able to uh be involved a little bit more i i personally didn't do any rural rotations but i've heard that typically on rural rotations you're you're kind of a little bit more involved uh just because there are fewer students and residents and whatnot
1: i'd say so yeah Uh, I was actually the first student to actually ever do a rural rotation with Horizon and Dr. Arthur Chu, he's a CMO chief medical officer and was my attending physician for essentially the entirety of my rotation there. Dr. Chu would actually let me take the reins with some interviews. And, you know, I I think it really helped me to develop a better diagnostic gestalt because he also let me interview all the patients that came in through the psych D when we were on station. So it was really hands-on, and it allowed me to kind of throw myself into the deep end of the pool and figure out how to swim. But after a while, I was able to interview more confidently. I was able to develop a good biopsychosocial formulation, which I'll touch on a little later on when we talk about the sub-ice. And also uh, being able to more accurately describe patient's mental state and the content of the interview, and start to suggest future treatment plans and things to be aware of.
0: Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, so let's let's actually transition to those sub eyes. But uh, before I do, I should preface this you know, we did our fourth year, the end of our third year and the beginning of our fourth year during the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, a lot of things changed for us. A lot of the beginning of fourth year was online. Uh, It was uh, extremely stressful and things got switched around. ERAS got pushed back. Uh, So it was just kind of a mess um, as far as, you know, getting your sub eyes in and applying. Uh, But do you have any, any, go ahead.
1: So don't, don't forget to mention all the shenanigans with ProMetric and trying to schedule oh. a step two. Matt oh, Matt had a harder get... Matt had a much harder time with that than me. Uh, he got Thanos snapped a few
0: times. Oh man. Uh, yeah, don't even get me started on that. I, I probably had to reschedule <laughs> about five times. But <clears throat> any uh any tips on succeeding on your on your psych sub and and maybe maybe talk a little bit about what that entails.
1: Sure. So with the site sub and especially, again, for folks who are going into the site, this is essentially your audition. And in the normal year, without the COVID-19 pandemic, you do your sub-eye and your core program, most likely, and also do away rotations, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But I think the advice still works for both the sub-eye and your aways. Is we talk about getting a good handle on the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria, and also the mental status exam from the third year rotation. Where the sub-I really comes in and what the best thing to do really is take what you've learned, do the same thing, right? Get a good handle, refresh yourself on the DSM-5, refresh yourself on the mental status exam, and also start to weave in that biopsychosocial formulation. And what that is, it's it's a relatively new concept that's been emerging in psychiatry over the last few years. But it, it, it is an expression that really gets to the core of what causes changes in mental health and status. This formulation is intended to identify biological, psychological, and social drivers that can influence a person's mental state, whether it may provide protective factors against episodes of depression, suicidal ideation, or if they could exacerbate and worsen the person's mental state and in some cases flare up some of the symptoms that they have from the diagnosis. And so being able to get a handle on that formulation and work it into your presentations uh, when you're presenting that patient. So for example, we could talk about a patient who was admitted for alcohol use disorder. He had drank two handles of vodka the night before, started making suicidal ideation comments uh, to his roommate and was then transferred to the hospital. He has a history of depression, anxiety, potentially PTSD, the details are a little murky. He has only recently came to Arizona two weeks ago and has not found a job yet, doesn't have an income is living with six roommates in a small one-bedroom house. So if you're going to create a biopsychosocial formulation, you can talk about the fact that he has an ongoing alcohol use disorder. It's also contributing to uh, con- uh, an acute pancreatitis. It's causing him abdominal pain, contributing to his current presentation. Uh, but as a positive, biologically speaking, he doesn't have any other pre-existing physical health conditions, no heart disease, no diabetes. The guy's 31 years old, so he's in relatively good shape. Psychologically, we can point to the fact that he has this history of depression, anxiety, possible elements of trauma that are a factor in this formulation. If you want to talk about a positive, uh, some patients have a good support structure. They live with family they have people who are able to continue their care as an outpatient, they have therapists and psychiatrists. And in terms of the social formulation aspect, we're talking about this guy living in a very crowded household, people coming in and out all the time. He doesn't have income, he doesn't have health insurance. And those are going to be social pressures that add to this overall formulation that this individual needs support for his alcohol use disorder. Maybe we start him on naltrexone to help with cravings and get him into an outpatient rehab facility. We start to address the complex psychiatric history by starting him on an antidepressant because we've many that media based on our intake, as well as working to help with anxiety by teaching him coping skills. And same for the PTSD, and this will continue as an outpatient. And in terms of the social supports, this is where our... our Knights in Shining Armor, our social work team comes in to really help find placement for him with an outpatient rehab facility and also organizing those outpatient appointments. So that way, as he leaves the inpatient unit, once he's medically and psychiatrically stabilized, he has a continuing therapeutic relationship that will help with everything we talked about in the biopsychosocial formulation. That's how you impress your attendings and the residents is being engrossed with it and being able to show that, yes, this is what I think is going on. Here's a formulation. I know what I'm talking about. And you know, showing that you have knowledge is important, especially for your auditions. Now part of this, and I feel like I'm rambling, so please stop me or cut me. It's
0: okay. Keep going. This is good stuff.
1: But uh part of the auditions is also just working with the team. And you know, as much as folks like to sometimes dismiss it, it's really important to be able to mesh and have cohesion with the folks you work with, uh, because oftentimes the question does get brought up, would I want to work with this person? Because as much as this is developing a career, learning the clinical gestalt, it's also a job and jobs involve teamwork, working with other people. So that it, it it's important to make sure that I, I think the term I want to use here is authentic. Mm-hmm. It's important that you be authentic in your interactions with people. You help out as much as you can. You do your work as a sub or the way rotator, but you you're authentic to yourself. You show people that you're a team player, but you know, I'm, I'm not the type that really enjoys getting buttered up. Maybe this is a personal bias of mine. I, I prefer when people are just real and yeah. authentic. I, I don't know if that really makes sense, but that, that's just my personal opinion is you know, I I wanna know that the person that might be joining as a junior resident uh, in the class beneath me or some classes beneath me is someone that I would enjoy working with and that you know they're generally people I want to hang out with too. Mm -hmm. It's not good for a work environment, especially during residency, that there's discord, disharmonious interactions with co-residents and others in the organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. You know, I feel like a lot of times during, during third year, you're just there, you're just trying to impress, you're just trying to get that honors, you know, you're just trying to get the good evals and whatever, uh, and then you move into fourth year and like you said, you know, this sub I is supposed to be in something that you want to go into. So it's, it's different, you know, you still have to know all of your stuff. You have to be better than you were during third year. But at the same time, like you said, like, this is, a, this is an audition. Like they're, they're, they want to see if they would be willing to work with you or if they, they want to work with you. So I think being authentic, being yourself, uh, is, extremely important, uh, during these sub eyes. And, you know, if you, if you just kind of fake it and you're not yourself, then, you know, the residents might not like whatever you fake. And then at the same time, you know, you're also, they're auditioning, you know, you're auditioning for them and, but also they're auditioning for you. Right. I mean, at the same time, you want to make sure you're a good fit in their program. You know, you want to make sure that you like your, potential co-residents or whatever that you'll be working with in the future. So being yourself is extremely important. I agree. Uh, good. Well, uh, next away rotations. So like we talked about, you know, we obviously didn't do away rotations, but uh, just because of the pandemic, I've heard some mixed things about psych and away rotations. Can you talk about them? You know, Are they, is it something that's kind of required? Uh, In some other specialties, you know, basically your entire application is based on how you did on away rotations, whereas others, it's like, yeah, you can do it if you want. Um, Or you're going somewhere to be like, okay, I really want to match here, so I'm going to do away rotation there. What is it kind of like in psychiatry?
1: I think it's slowly changing just because psychiatry as a specialty is becoming more popular with medical students. Uh, I think during this last application cycle with Eris, after the match, there was only three or four unfilled positions in psychiatry entirely. Um, right. So those last three or four spots, they had to go into the soap uh, process. But you know, those, were, those were the only spots. All the other psychiatry slots were filled after the match then. So you know, I, I take that as an indication that people are more interested in psychiatry. I mean, for a variety of factors, mental health has become a bigger issue, especially itself compared to several other specialties. Great lifestyle, you know, comparably good pay, and good job security. Uh, and you know, it's on the lower end in terms of years spent in the residency, typically four. And some programs let you do an accelerated uh, residency plus child and adolescent psychiatric residency. So, it could be shifting more towards you should do away rotations. I'm not so sure about that just yet. I have to defer that to my program director and what her, uh, well, her word on the street that she's picking up is, but, uh, generally speaking from what I know about psych during my application process. And again, this was colored by the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic shut down away rotations,
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: it's not necessarily required unless you really want to target a region of America. You want to go to and practice in. Uh, and you know, the same, the same things apply for the Sabai to the away with the same advice. In my mind, uh, it might be the case that away rotations are might be required to some extent, just so that you show that you have more psychiatric uh, exposure before you start residency. Uh, and that's, that's what the f- first few months before you submit RSS are probably going to be used for. It's going to be some away rotations. Uh, from my experience, I only did my psychiatry sub-I with the program I eventually ended up matching to, uh, Banner University Psychiatry in Phoenix. I hadn't done any other away rotations, partially because of COVID, partially because even though I couldn't have done a rotation then at U of A Tucson, I didn't feel the need to. Uh, I had already had strong letters of rack of board from other rotations. And it worked out fine for me. I, I had eight interviews throughout the season out of a total of 50 applications that sent out and just one sub I. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, that might change in the coming years. It will be an increasing popularity for psychiatry. Uh, But in general, if you do decide to do away rotations, do it around the same time you'll do your sub-I, the first few blocks of fourth year. Get them in before Eris, ideally. And especially if you want to make sure that from one of these or two of these away rotations, you get a letter of right from one of those attendings. You want that letter in, in time for Eris. So that way you want your application as fast as possible. Uh, But that's more of a logistics thing.
0: Gotcha. Well, let, let's shift more towards uh, applications then. Uh, as far as, you know, when you're putting together your application, there's a lot of different sections you have to fill out. Uh, there's, you know, research, extracurriculars, uh, you know, letters of rec, like you talked about, there's a lot of different things. Uh, we've talked about letters of rec a, a little bit. What about extracurricular activities? Uh, what, what of those did you participate in during medical school that were psych related that you think helped with your application?
1: Okay, yeah, so in terms of extracurriculars, one of the primary ones that I got engaged with early on, and this is during the second half first year, and I think the vast majority, if not all medical schools, have a similar kind of setup where there's uh, specialty-focused interest groups ran by students. So as a first year, I got involved with a psychiatry interest group. I led that with one of, my, one of our classmates, uh, and for the course of a full calendar year, I was working to help provide our assumed body with access to psychiatrists, have them come in for lunch panels. That way they get to sort to get a sense of you know, what the kinds of career options there are within the field, what the prospects are, what a day of work in the normal course of a psychiatrist's career would be, and you know, the opportunities within the specialty itself. Uh, that was one of the major ones that I was very involved with. Uh, but in terms of other extracurricular activities I was involved with, uh, it wasn't fully psych related, but I still feel that it is very important for the field itself. Uh, I served as the finance and marketing director for Street Medicine Phoenix. This was a group that uh, supported the homeless population in the metropolitan Phoenix area by doing what the co founders describe as street runs. So volunteers would go directly to where the homeless folks are and provide basic health care checkups, glucose checks. We would bring along an interprofessional team of a variety of students and preceptors to support our work as well. And that included some social work to help with socioeconomic aspects of these folks' care. And both as a finance and marketing director as well as a volunteer with the program, I realized that there was quite a lot of psychiatric concerns that the homeless, the unsheltered have. We were actually able to have a few psychiatrists uh, from Banner also act as preceptors and whenever they would show up for one of our street runs, I'd spend a lot of time with them just discussing patients and psychiatry as a whole. And we've, uh, we've been able to get a handle through some of the outreach and research that we've done on some of the psychiatric uh, diagnoses that are pretty common for that community. So I I like to think that that one was also fairly psychiatry related, not not necessarily 100%, but very valuable still.
0: Right. Right. No question. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, let's move on to, uh, research. Uh, did you do any research? Was any research, uh, psych related? Um, yeah. Would you recommend research?
1: It, it depends on each person's appetite for it. For U of A, for our class and essentially all the classes that go through our program, we do have a required scholarly project, which does entail research. Uh, So my scholarly project was working towards understanding perceptions of primary care in our program. Uh, That one wasn't really psych related, that was more just attitudes and thoughts about primary care as a whole. The research that I helped support through Street Medicine Phoenix, that one was slightly more psych related because we were identifying common psychiatric diagnoses in the unsheltered community and identifying ways that we could loop in other interprofessional programs to help support those specific concerns. Uh, We're actually working on a couple of manuscripts right now with street medicine that we're hoping to get published soon. Uh, But that said, I I was able to help out with some posters throughout medical school for street medicine. Uh, It it really depends on the person. Some folks are juggernauts when it comes to (laughs) bench research or doing hard, like the hard research and doing quite a lot of it too. I don't consider myself one of those kinds of people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it was an interesting way to engage another part of my set of skills that I've gained from college and med school, uh, in support of the work I was doing with Street Nice and Phoenix. So, I'd say definitely consider it, especially if it's something that you want to get interested in. Uh, It's really a question of what you want to do with the time, whether you want to do research or something else that you you enjoy doing and you feel would be beneficial for your application.
0: Gotcha. And honestly, you know, looking at your app, uh, your CV, you know, you did participate in quite a bit of research. I mean, not a ton. You got, you got your feet wet at least, you know what I mean? Uh You did obviously the required stuff for U of A, uh, but you also did, like you said, a lot of street medicine, Phoenix, you did some poster presentations. So, I mean, it's not like you didn't have anything. Um, but uh do you feel like do you feel like that helped did, Like, did it get brought up on your interviews? I guess. Uh Did anyone talk about your research?
1: A few times, yeah, Uh, mostly because the novelty of street medicine as a concept really caught a lot of interviewers' eyes. They wanted to hear more about what we were doing. Uh, I think only one interviewer brought up my college poster from (laughs) my uh, cancer research support back in uh, undergrad, but the street medicine research did come up a few times, and street medicine as a whole, really.
0: Right. And street medicine, I think it's fascinating. Uh, and, you know, the things that, that that you did and Justin did and some of the other people, on uh, street medicine, Phoenix, I mean, it's, it's incredible. You guys are doing some great work. So I'm, I'm not surprised that that got brought up uh, quite a bit on your views and research. I, I think it's uh, some people's cup of tea. It's other people, you know, they just don't like it very much. Um, but, uh, you will do research in residency. It's, it's required by the ACGME. So I think showing some interest in research or at least some projects I think is important, um, in general, but, um, cool. Uh, next let's talk about kind of the different, uh, places that you applied and kind of what you did to research them. You mentioned you applied to about 50 or so programs, uh, when you're researching these programs, what did you do to prioritize uh, these different programs uh, and what made you really interested in the ones that you ended up applying to?
1: Yeah, so it, it was a variety of factors and I encourage everyone going through the ERIS process to do the same thing. You, know, you take a look at the application that you've developed over the course of you know, three years of medical school. And also, uh, side note, when you're doing ERIS you include everything from the very start of college. So that's why I have an undergrad poster on my Eris application, along with some other roles I had back then. Uh, so with that in mind, you take into account what kind of application you develop, you know, how much research you've done, extracurriculars and leadership activities, uh, the, the kind of, uh, I guess, appearance of your application itself. Because people can also start to get a vibe of who a person is, is and what kinds of things are interesting to them based on the style that they took through medical school, in a sense. What I mean by that is, what was their focus What do they speak authentically about? What do they get excited about when they write about it in the application and potential secondaries? Are they someone who's very interested in research They get stalled behind cutting-edge technologies and therapeutics? Are they someone who's very involved with the socioeconomic factors, the public health aspects of psychiatry? They can start to pick that up from the application. So that's one of the aspects is, as you're doing your research on programs, with an understanding of what your application is and what you have to offer, finding programs that might match both your personal values and the application that you develop. Part of my selection process is also prioritizing uh, big cities. I'm a big city kind of guy. I, I like, you know, skylines. I like having a lot of things to do in the city itself. So I prioritize those settings as well. And that's also because the cities themselves will have a wide variety of communities that come in for mental health treatment. So that was a major factor for me as well. Uh, and then lastly, I, I forced myself to stay at 50 Uh Because, you know, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we couldn't travel for interviews. We did everything by Zoom. So there was such a temptation to take the extra money that I would have spent traveling for interviews and throwing them at more applications. And I could have gone as high as 80, I think. The thought crossed my mind way more than once. But I, I forced myself to stick to 50 because I was confident in my application, and I felt that... Personally, after 50, I would have diminishing returns. I'd be spending more money that really wouldn't get me anywhere. And it, it didn't seem fruitful for me to do research on that many programs because I'd probably get tired of looking at programs after number 50.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the, the interviews would probably drag after a while as well, I'd imagine. Right. So I, I
1: forced myself to stay at 50 so that I could be more judicious with which programs I chose to apply to. And so that way I was comfortable with the slate of places I had put in my aerospace application to, And it was geographically pretty well spread out across the entire U S. Uh, but for, for my own personal reasons, I wanted to stay here in Arizona. So those three programs, Maricopa, U of A Tucson and Phoenix, they were in my top three.
0: Gotcha. So transitioning to interviews, uh, again, you know, we interviewed during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, so it made things a little tricky uh, as far as interviews go. It, it was, none of it was in person. It was all uh, through Zoom or Skype or whatnot. Uh, so, again, a little different uh, our year than maybe in prior years and most likely in future years. But any any tips uh, to succeed during interviews uh, or, you know, how to succeed in interview season in general?
1: This is where business school, Jasper, comes back in. So (laughs) the Eller College of Management, totally not a plug or anything, but the, the way that they teach undergrads in any business major, they train us very well in public speaking, giving presentations, and also interviewing because oftentimes folks who graduate from Eller try to go on to the big ways. They try to hit Wall Street. They try to hit the big four accounting firms. We try to go into consulting with McKinsey or some of the biggest financial juggernauts in the world. And so with that in mind, they want to make sure that our skills in presenting ourselves to other people who can decide the fate of our career, those skills are as top notch as possible. And I I feel like it might be also a force of habit at this point, because I find myself getting back in that mindset all throughout this recording. (laughs) But Prepare for interviews, again, like you're doing your research on programs, it requires you to have a good understanding of your application. That helps you feel more confident when you're speaking in person or over camera because that shows them that you know yourself, you know what your highlights are, and you're able to describe them to the person across the table from you in a way that makes you an appetizing applicant and possible resident for the program. So one of the things that they teach us in business school, and I think some medical schools will do this too as part of a little coaching session, we talk about the STAR technique. And this is a very concise and regimented way to respond to interview questions. And this STAR technique is an acronym. STAR, S, situation. T, task. A, action. R, result. It's a framework that allows you to use stories, experiences, things you've done throughout undergrad, medical school, even beyond, in a way that's easy to remember. So say you get a question like, tell me about a time where you struggled at first with a project and then found a way to improve upon the process. Very open-ended question. There's a million different stories that you can go with. You can fall back to the start technique. My start technique for that would be this situation. When I started as a finance and marketing director, one of the projects I was assigned was to develop a stronger database of our volunteers and contact information. But the issue there was it was information that was disorganized. It wasn't consolidated in one place. So that was my situation. The task itself, design an Excel spreadsheet that, consolidated all this information, the name, the program, what kind of training program that volunteer was from, student or preceptor, email address, phone number, or the best form of contact. A, action. I asked the co-founders for all the information they had, whether it was from separate emails, sheets of paper that volunteers had signed in on, or even text messages that gave me that information. And At first, it was difficult because of all these varying forms of media, but I was able to work with the co-founders, sit down with them, and basically have all this information available at my fingertips physically after a little bit of corralling. And after all that information was in my hands, it made my process much more streamlined. The result... I was able to develop an Excel spreadsheet detailing our 118 volunteers, staff and students, preceptors, who had been at a street run within the last six months prior to the completion of the project. And that allowed us to continue with our efforts, reach out to these individuals, and sustain a volunteer pool which we were able to use to continue serving the Phoenix homeless population and expand our efforts from one site to three in the Phoenix area. That's a STAR technique. It takes practice. It really took me a long time to be able to do that, but I had the luxury of doing that while I was an undergrad. What I recommend to anyone listening to this right now, practice it with a friend, practice it with your dog, practice it with your family, practice it in the mirror when you're getting ready for a 3 a.m. rotation. But whenever you have the opportunity, try to use that technique because it really helps people stay on track And once you're good enough at it, it makes you sound incredibly confident to the person across the table from you. They see you do that, and they'll say, this person has it together. They're concise, they're detailed, and they know how to present information well, which in psychiatry, as we know, that's important when we're describing a patient's condition. So that, that that was a that was a I don't know five minutes of business school there for you, but I, that, that's something I stand
0: by. I'll, I'll I'll pay you tuition later, but yeah, no that the star technique I like that I've never heard that before, so that's really cool. I, I have to remember it's that drilled
1: into my head, drilled yeah. into my head, and sometimes I wake up with the sound of use a star technique in my head.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I like the other thing you said too. Really knowing your application, you know. It sounds kind of silly. You know, of course I know my application. I wrote my application and that my application is me, you know, but it's interesting going through interviews. When you look at your first interview and look at your last interview, you sound so much more confident. You sound so much better, so much smoother with your application, talking about what you did, uh, you know, about what you accomplished during medical school and whatnot at the end, way more than you did at the beginning. You know what I mean? And a- I think absolutely. it comes down, to, and, and I think it comes down to, like you said, just really knowing your application. So if you can work on that and practice it earlier, like ja- Jasper was saying, yeah, I think that can really help.
1: And to add on, you know, succeeding with interview season in general, in your interviews themselves. Uh, one more point about being in the interview itself: it's normal to have anxiety, nerves, feeling a little shaky about it. One of the best ways to sound even more confident, and I think this is something you might notice with both Matt and myself talking throughout this uh, podcast, don't say like, um, or ah. Those are filler words. Those are ways that you sound unprepared, less confident, and it, it throws people off balance when they realize you're saying like, um, or ah. You'll notice that when I'm speaking in professional settings or even during this podcast, I take pauses, almost like uh, President Obama does when he speaks. I started doing that because, like Elmer Ah, was a no-no in uh, both medical school and business school. I remember my business communications professor literally clicking a counter every time myself or one of my teammates (laughs) for my presentations said, like Elmer Ah. And that might have been hazing, but it works. It it worked really well. So now I take pauses, making sure not to have those pauses extend for more than a second. There are ways to gather thoughts. Once you've done it enough times, it will come naturally. And you'll be able to recover quickly. Being able to eliminate those filler words or stuttering or repeating a word or dragging out with a pregnant pause for longer than a second. Eliminating those from when you're presenting yourself professionally is going to do wonders for your application, for your interviews, and how well others perceive you when they speak with you. And same thing goes for making presentations and presenting patients. In terms of interview season overall, go back to your research for the program, figure out why you originally applied to them in the first place, because after a while, they'll all start to blend together but pick out certain aspects of the program that really intrigues you because they'll ask you, why did you choose this program? Why did you apply to us? What do you find fascinating about what we do here in X program? Review those details. And again, this is a force of habit of mine, but I always double check my application book every night before an uh, interview. It was a way for me to, again, refresh my memory understand why I applied to this program, and it helps keep me in the moment. Meaning, okay, I'm interviewing with X program. Here's why I interview with X program. Parts of my application that apply to X program are these. I also do some due diligence and look up who the program director is because you'll oftentimes interview with them look at the mission statement look at the different electives they have for interns that shows that you have an interest that you're invested and this is a place that you would enjoy going to that that's really my biggest advice for interview season other than all the interview prep i just gave (laughs) is a continually refresh review and make sure you're as prepared as possible if you have a ritual that helps you calm down before interviews, do it. Tennis players always have a ritual before they toss up their serves. Uh, basketball players, before they shoot their free throws, a lot of them have rituals themselves. People have interview rituals. I have mine. Usually that means chugging a Red Bull, but it works for me. <laughs> uh,
0: it's, a, it's a great way to help with the interview shakes is to is to chug a Red <laughs> Bull right before. Uh, very good. All right. So do your DD, do your due diligence. Don't say like um or ah, uh, and I feel like you really called me out on that one there, Jasper. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and then just you know understand your application, really, really know it, and it will go it will go well for you. Absolutely, Hi, right, Jasper. Very good. I we're getting close to the end here, so I appreciate everything, all the tips that you've given us so far. Sure thing. So now that you've matched. Uh, congratulations by the way. Uh, and are going to be <laughs> <too>. a psychiatrist. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And are going to be a psychiatrist. Uh, do you have any idea of how you want to structure your future practice, whether that's inpatient, outpatient, fellowship, etc.?
1: That's part of the process for residency in general is defining how you want to set up the rest of your career, going into the process for ERIS, the residency match process, I was thinking that I would actually try to do a fellowship in what's called forensic psychiatry. And what that entails is working with the legal system, working with places like here in Arizona, we have a place called Arizona state hospital. Maricopa deals with the involuntary patients. Arizona state hospital deals with the high security, potentially danger to society and danger to the community types of folks. Those The psychiatrists there tend to be forensic psychiatrists. They're very well involved with the legal system. And they're the interface between legal precedents and clinical practice. These individuals also have the opportunity, if they go private, to act as expert witnesses and, uh, and medical counsel for legal cases. And this can span any number of different types of legal cases. For me, that was always interesting is the interfaces between medicine and other areas, being able to utilize my clinical knowledge along with exploring other parts of America, in a sense. It goes along with my desire to learn about communities. It also allows me the opportunity to learn more about our legal system and where, where my role as a psychiatrist could be in supporting those who are mentally unwell in the system it it isn't a point for me to always be on the defense attorney side or the va but it's an opportunity for me to utilize my skills in a pretty unique way which is always interesting for me Uh, but if i weren't to do that uh, fellowship i'm not sure right now for my intern year i'm spending all my psychiatry time on the inpatient unit and over the course of the next few years, it will slowly become a mix of outpatient and inpatient, and then over to 100% outpatient, except for call uh, at the hospital. So we'll see how I feel after I get deeper into the residency. Right now, the inpatient unit, it's very interesting. Again, high acuity, varied diagnoses and presentations. It's fascinating. It's a lot to learn, but it is incredibly engrossing.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I understand that you're on inpatient right now, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on and talking to us today. You've been fantastic. You've given us a lot of things to think about. Any last minute tips uh, to help medical students, you know, shine on their rotations or any last minute tips just in general for those looking to go into psychiatry?
1: I always go back to telling folks to uh, be authentic. At the same time, this might be a little more philosophical in nature, but being authentic requires you to know who you are, and that could be uh, <laughs> that could be a little bit more of an existential kind of question. Really, <laughs> I, I still think it's valuable because we only have a limited amount of time. This career in some way, shape, or form will define who you are. And you still have to honor yourself for the person you are, the person you've become over the course of medical school, the things that you've had to sacrifice, the things that you've been able to experience because of this process. Being authentic means you know what all that represents for yourself. And to be authentic also means to honor all those pieces. Not giving too much weight to one piece or another, but letting them all be as they are. And to me, that means learning why I do the things that I do. What drives me? Is it in line with what my career goals are? This goes for any specialty, not just psychiatry. Is what I want to do for myself or not? If it is for myself, is it something that will generate maybe happiness, maybe fulfillment, insert whatever word there you you might want, but does it satisfy you? Does it do something for you that no other field can? Now, the running joke that we always say is, if you can imagine yourself doing anything but surgery, do it. In in a sense, I'm kind of saying the same thing here. We, We, again, we only have so much time here. Any time that you're spending not honoring yourself, not honoring who you are, with your decisions, with the career path you choose, that's room for regret. We can't escape it, but there's opportunities to reduce the regret that we have. So that's my advice. It it might have been in a different direction than I think you might have intended for the last (laughs) minute advice, but that's me waxing philosophically. Know who you are, know why you do things, and be authentic.
0: Hey, we, we get deep here on this podcast. So <laughs> anyway. Jasper, I really appreciate it again. Thank you so much for coming on. If anyone has questions for you specifically after they've listened to the podcast, what's a good way uh, to get a hold of you? Sure. Best
1: way is likely over email. So it's my first name dot last name at gmail.com.
0: No capitals. Per- Perfect. And I'll, I'll put the, I'll spell out your name and put your email in the show notes. Jasper, I appreciate it. Thank you again so much for taking out of, taking time out of your very busy schedule as an intern uh, to talk to us today. And I hope you have a great night. I hope you have a great rest of your psychiatry residency and hope to see you again soon. Thanks, buddy.
1: Absolutely. Always happy to help out, Matt.
0: All right. That concludes our podcast with Dr. Purakan. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.